The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Perro columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to our first edition of the Explorers podcast. Today I have Scott Williamson, Managing Director of the Perth-based Blackstone Minerals. Their stock code is BSX, or Bravo Sierra X-Ray if you like. It's trading at about seven and a half cents for a market cap of $9 million. So you've got to think there's plenty of leverage there to the upside from the group's spread of exploration and development projects. They take in cobalt gold in British Columbia, gold and nickel in Western Australia, and the recently added Tarqua nickel copper cobalt project in Vietnam. All that list suggests Blackstone is one of the most active of the juniors on the ASX, and leading that fast-moving pace is my guest today. Welcome, Scott, and thanks for joining us here at Stockhead today. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me, and um, yeah, looking forward to chatting all about that great stuff that you've put in the intro. Good on you. Now, Scott, I've always thought that a good guiding principle to investing in junior stocks is to know and understand the people running the show, and that, that really applies first, second, and third. So I'm hoping we can start out today with you telling us a bit about your formative years in the industry. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's a great, great start because, um, as you know, when you're investing in junior stocks, it's all about management. Um, so my background is a, is a mix between technical and more corporate or financial roles. Um, so I started um, with the Curtin University or uh, West Australian School of Mines um, back in 2001. Um, and I did a double degree with mining engineering and commerce. Um, so that gave me, a, I suppose, good exposure to both the technical and financial aspects of mining. Mm-hmm. And then so the first probably half of my career was as an underground mining engineer, um, started in Kalgoorlie um, with the School of Mines. And then through that um, career, I, I was able to move all around Australia, working in different underground mines and different mining methods. Um, underground mining is a, I suppose, really exciting part of the mining cycle. And yeah, so I got exposure to not just narrow vein, um, I suppose, gold, but also some bulk underground mining methods um, like block caving, mm-hmm. which was up in Argyle and, and also in North Parks in New South Wales. So, yeah, a mixture of different commodities across gold and copper and nickel, um, but also a mixture of different mining methods. And then about halfway through my career, I then chose to take the financial path and and use my commerce degree, which um, it was actually Hartley's, which is a local stockbroking firm over here in Perth, that gave me a, um, an opportunity to be a mining analyst. And, and that was also a very good experience for my current role um, as managing director. Mm. So, yeah, I learned a lot about mining stocks, different projects, but also about geology and metallurgy as well, which was... I suppose things that I'd, I'd learnt a little bit about it in, in university but never really um, was exposed to until I took on that mining analyst 
uh, stockbroking type role. I went all around the world looking at projects for Hartleys and um, and some, and I picked a couple of winners. But um, obviously, yeah, they don't all work out as planned. But yeah, we had we had some good times at Hartleys, and um, and then I moved back into mining. Um, first um, role back in mining was with Resolute as an investor relations manager. So that's also a, more of a financial type. Uh, market capital markets type role and and then that was a great stepping stone into what is very much a capital markets um, role now as a managing director yeah looking through your cv you've worked for some big names there rio tinto barrack uh, even the old wmc what would you describe would the main differences for you uh working with a a junior now leading a junior as compared to working for one of the big boys of the industry yeah, it's interesting. I, I started with Rio Tinto and then progressively I, I moved towards smaller um, companies. Um, they The majors are very good with, um, uh, I suppose, training and, and developing their pers- people and, and that was really, I suppose, a good starting point as a career in mining was to, to really start with a major. And um, the difference being is that the smaller I went the more, I suppose, control I had of my destiny. And and, and now as a, an MD of a junior, I'm, I'm in full control of, of where not not just my career but also where the company goes. So I think it's been a, a, an interesting journey to, to progressively um, move to smaller companies. But in the larger companies, I lacked that ability to sort of I suppose control my own destiny, and but saying that, I learnt a lot about mining and and how the world class um, companies like Rio Tinto and Barrick, how they operate, and that was a really good sort of foundation for me to to then move on to some smaller companies. Mm. Now that that uh, you do have that interesting mix of having worked for the big companies at uh, as you said a number of locations around the world. And then you had that four or five years uh, capital markets experience with Hartleys and I think you were also investor relations uh, chief at uh, Resolute. Um, I'm just wondering, it's an unusual mix uh, for an MD of a junior to have that both technical and capital markets experience. Um, I'm just wondering from that, are there any messages that you can say to investors in the junior space, what they should be looking out for and how best juniors can get their story in front of investors, uh, particularly given that endless need to secure the all-important equity funding to keep things moving? Yeah, I suppose it's interesting because um, when my board were recruiting for this role, they were very much focused on someone that had that capital markets experience and the fact that I had a little bit of technical experience as well was was almost just a bonus for them. Mm -hmm. And so the my board is... Um, I suppose very progressive in in their thinking and and in realizing that this game is all about accessing the capital. Um, I've got some great technical people in my team, so I don't have to worry too much about that. Obviously, I do roll the sleeves up every now and then and get involved. But mm. so the the team around me is 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 one of the best technical teams I've ever worked with. My geologist, um, Dr. Stuart Owen, is is probably the best geologist I've ever worked with. So I, I don't have to worry about the geology. My, my role is solely around finding the capital. 
And and through my, I suppose, experience in the stockbroking game, I, I haven't sort of had any issues with that. And and that and that allows the geologist to get on with the geology and um, and as long as I can find the money, then then it's a great, um, I suppose, team to and we can really work together and, and achieve something. So it is important when you're investing in mining, um, junior mining stocks, is to just have a look at the team and, and whether they are able to access capital because without the capital, particularly in, in the market like we are in now, mm. your, your share price is unfortunately not going anywhere because um, you, know, you can't drill and, and explore and do all the great things that the geologists are good at. Um, without accessing that capital, so, and and as and as good as our team is at accessing capital, we've still found it very difficult in the in the current market. So, it is it would even be more difficult for for um, players that don't have that experience in capital markets like we do. Mm. Now, I've noticed over time that you're a, a big fan of social media. I think I get more messages from <laughs> you than uh, I see my daughters on the same platforms, but. Um, <laughs> Is it uh, you? You see social media as a, an important new outlet to get the message out there on uh, company activities and ambitions. Yeah, it is, and and I I'm actually I think on the cusp between Gen X and Gen Y, so I probably should be better at it. But when I first took on the role, I um, quickly rang my young brother, who's uh, about five years younger, and and he's definitely a Gen Y, and I, and I I said, can you teach me how to tweet? Um, and so I didn't know much about it. Um, I did have a Facebook account, which was I hadn't really posted anything on for about 10 years. Um, I was sort of one of those early adopters on Facebook and then left um, pretty quickly because it sort of could see that it probably wasn't adding much value to, to me personally. But um, And then LinkedIn was another one that really I had... I'd. I was an early adopter, but wasn't really, um, I suppose, using it to its full potential. And that's one that's really been, for me, a really powerful tool um, for for professionals. So it has become a big part of, of what I do, but I think um, for the better. And, and, and it, the way I see it is it's a very cheap um, way of, of sort of getting the message out there. And, um, and my time, obviously... Um, spent on 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 the social media platforms is fairly minimal but it it particularly with the way the algorithms work these days you can can get some very good reach for not much um, I suppose input in in time mm. a lot of them a lot of the tweets and messages you do send out on the airwaves there uh, aren't necessarily about Blackstone itself you tend to look at some of the macro issues uh, that's important for investors you think to be aware of and on top of the macro issues yeah, it, it is. I use it as a platform to put forward our view as a company through the, um, I suppose, the, the media outlets that are really covering this battery metals um, EV revolution so well. Um, I think it's important that we, we push those those articles out because um, it, it, it shows the, um, I suppose, excitement that we have, but also it shows... What we're seeing um, in the background, so we we're dealing with battery end users on a regular basis. So all of this stuff that we're pushing out, that the, the mainstream media is pushing out, mm. is real, and we I see this um, uh, regularly. We we've been to Korea now 
four times. I'm heading to Korea on Monday. Um, these um, Asian um, battery manufacturers are, are getting very aggressive. Um, they, they need these metals and, and they, they have very um, exciting targets that are really, they haven't sort of thought about too much about how they're going to achieve these targets as far as metals go. And they're, and they're now realising that particularly the, the metals of nickel and cobalt are just very difficult to find. And and so all of this great news that's being put out there through through mainstream media is actually right on the money. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, it hasn't been um, influencing the, the, the stock prices in the, in recent times. And and obviously we've had ups and downs in the battery metals space, but I really think that it's not being influenced in, in the current um, equity space for battery metals. Mm. Do you think that possibly just could be a focus on the lithium sector in the ASX market, uh, given that lithium price has taken a hit and there's been that talk about uh, near-term oversupply? Yeah, I think both lithium and cobalt, obviously the prices have come off significantly. The I believe the reason being is that I suppose the the market did it got ahead ahead of itself and uh, and we we started to price in future demand that hadn't occurred yet. The battery metals story is really a twenty twenty five story, and we've got a market at the moment that can't really see that far ahead, and and it's all it's always sort of trading on the short term um, ups and downs and. And so the market probably priced it in a little bit too early, um, but now it's significantly undervalued it um, to the downside. So, yeah, it's. I think it's a great opportunity for long-term investors that can sort of take a view out to 2025 and beyond, mm. but also be wary that the market is so, so short-term focused, so we're going to have some volatility um, over, over that period mm. as well. Now, are you leading by example and do you have an EV in the garage yet? <laughs> Not yet. Um, I, as you're probably aware, it's, it is a lot more difficult to access electric vehicles in Australia mm. than some uh, European countries. It's, yeah, it's something that I've definitely focused on and, and when the time's right, I want to, to move over as, as quickly as possible. But, it, yeah, it, a lot of it obviously is around infrastructure and and um, and having the the right setup in your garage. Um, so yeah, it's I haven't led by example yet, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's something I'm def- definitely looking forward to doing. Mm. I'm waiting for Bill Shorten to show us his driving around Mooney Ponds before long. Um, <laughs> now. I think the British Columbia Cobalt Project is well understood and investors are keen on what will come from that in the longer term. But recently you've made this exciting acquisition in Vietnam. Uh, my Vietnamese friends tell me Ta Qua. Is that the correct pronunciation? That's right, Ta Qua, yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting, I suppose, to, to give a bit of context on how we came to this uh, asset and 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 the the reasons why we've gone down this path. So we were um, in Canada and we were very much focused on cobalt. And we, through our relationships with battery end users, they very quickly made us realise that 
cobalt is also um, as much as they need and, and require cobalt, they also need nickel. And and they are increasing nickel and reducing cobalt in the um, lithium-ion battery. So we quickly sort of realised this and, and we were advancing discussions on our Silver Swan South asset, which is near Kalgoorlie, uh, which is a nickel sulphide Greenfields exploration asset near near the Black Swan concentrator, uh, ten kilometres south of Black Swan. Um, Black Swan was the first underground mine I worked at um, back in Kalgoorlie, and um, so it was good to to I suppose look at that asset and and potentially fund that through um, battery and users. Unfortunately, we realised fairly quickly that that asset just wasn't quite close enough to production for these players. They need nickel as soon as possible. And so they, through that process, we were looking all around the world for nickel, advanced nickel sulphide um, exploration development players. And it was actually my ex-boss uh, back, back in Kalgoorlie days. So my second job was at the Kanauna Bell gold mine in Kalgoorlie and Evan Spencer was my the mine manager and I was a very young mining engineer and so I worked under Evan and and I caught up with Evan a few months ago and and I said oh whatever happened to that nickel mine that you uh, used to run so Evan used to run the Tarqua project it was um, the Banfook nickel mine and he worked for Asian Mineral Resources which was a TSX listed company so there was a lot of Australian input into its development? Yeah. So Evan, being an Australian mining engineer, he built this mine as if it was in Australia. So he operated it from 2013 to 2016 and they operated it as if it was in Australia. So they built it, the processing facility to Australian standards, the underground mine to Australian standards. They used an underground mining contractor and they used um, underground um, mechanised mining, so jumbos, um, large trucks, all of the equipment that we use in Australia today. So there's a, a great little mine there set up um, by Evan, and and so I said to Evan, uh, "What whatever happened there?" And he said, "Well, we just didn't explore. We we didn't have." Um, a board and management team that were focused on exploration. I had some great geologists and they, they wanted to explore, but unfortunately I just couldn't give them the money to explore. And I said, well, that's great because I've, I've got one of the best exploration teams in Australia and we, can, we could go over there and I think we, should, we could do some good things. So Evan put me on to the vendor. Um, the vendor is actually a metallurgist, um, which is a really interesting because that's a skill set that we don't have in our office. We have mining engineers and, and, geolo- and many geologists, but we don't have a metallurgist. So the vendor is a metallurgist um, and he's on board, so he's now part of our team. Is he a Vietnamese national? Or? No, he's also Australian. Um, he's been he's an, an expat Australian, been living in Vietnam for nearly 10 years. He's been working on this mine for almost that whole time. And... Uh, so he built the plant. Uh, he operated it. He was he was the processing manager um, and metallurgist for the mine, which is a great skill set that we'll leverage off. Um, so unfortunately, um, Steve he he didn't have enough money to continue to progress the the asset. 
and he needed someone like us that could access the capital to explore and then move the mine back into production. So it's an exciting opportunity, not just for us, but also for Steve, because Steve gets to do what he always wanted to do, which was explore and and to, to reopen the mine. Um, in the meantime, we'll do a lot of study work and we'll, we'll do a lot of metallurgical testing and, and, and mining studies and, and a lot of that stuff. But first and foremost, we need to understand the geology. So what these guys did is they, they looked at the first um, target, they drilled it, and they found a, mo- a mine life of five years. They mined it in three and a half, and then they stopped. And they didn't explore any further than that first target. We've got 25 targets that we'll now test. And there's also, there's different types of mineralisation. There's massive sulphide and then there's also disseminated sulphide. So the previous explorers and and owners were focused on massive sulphide, um, which is a narrow vein, sort of two to three metres wide, running very high grade, which is which is a great target, and there's there's 25 of those veins to be tested. But we're also interested in the disseminated zone, which is a, l- a little bit lower grade but much larger uh, opportunity, and and that's what our end-user um, friends in, in Asia are really excited about is the, the bulk um, tonnes and the, the significant nickel tonnages that can potentially be mined from this this ore system. Now, I understand uh, more than the US, $130 million has been invested in the project to date. Yeah, it's, it's great because that's $130 million that I don't have to find. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and not that I wouldn't be able to find it. I think this is an asset that deserved every, every one of those dollars. Um, but for, for whatever reason, they didn't reinvest in exploration. Um, so the, one of the reasons is is that there was a tariff or royalty on shipping concentrate, and we we believe that through the process of upgrading to a battery product, whether that be a nickel sulfate or a nickel hydroxide, we can remove that tariff and and um, and work with the government on reducing tariffs and royalties. Mm. So unfortunately for the previous owners, that tariff meant that they, they paid $65 million back to the government, which is, which is a great, um, I suppose, benefit of, 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 of mining is, is that we do give back to the government. Mm. Um, that, that's probably a little bit too much, but we'll see. I think there's, there's an opportunity to reduce that significantly. Mm. So three and a half years they mined and they gave $65 million back to the government this was one of the highest tax-paying entities in the whole of, of Vietnam. Mm. So you can see the government's pretty keen to get this mine back up yeah. and running. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it generated significant revenue through a difficult nickel price. So the day Evan turned it on, um, the nickel price nearly fell from day one. So they got they got a little bit of a run-up and then was almost within six so. months. Yeah, so they they operated it. Um, they built started building in the GFC, and then they had to stop due to the GFC. They restarted around 2012, and they were operating from 2013 to 2016. Um, by the time they finished mining, it was some of the worst nickel prices we've seen in the last ten years. So unfortunately, the nickel price didn't um, go the way they expected, 
Um, this was well before the battery, um, I suppose, EV revolution. So, and, and ever since the mine was placed under current maintenance, the nickel price has been increasing uh, year on year. So we think it's a good time uh, and we think that with the, particularly with the, um, the onset of the lithium-ion batteries, that this is an asset that potentially is, is globally significant um, for, for nickel sulphide. And that's, I think that's the key part of this story is this is a nickel sulphide uh, magmatic nickel sulfide system and magmatic nickel sulfides are the source of some of them the largest nickel sulfide ore bodies around the world and and we think this could be one of them mm. uh, the other day bhp looked into their the mirror and tried to figure out what they uh, sort of metals they should be focused on and i heard them say that uh, nickel sulfide deposits of any description are exceptionally rare around the world so you've secured one of those i guess yeah it's uh well timed i think they came out with that um announcement soon after i i um, came out with my announcement so it was a great moment for us because it 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 i suppose defined everything that we'd been seeing and even so much so that we we were looking at nickel west and wondering why that would be would have been for sale uh, at all, and and obviously they've realised that over the the last few years that 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 nickel west asset is, I, I believe that one of the best nickel sulphide um, assets in the world, and particularly for the type of uh, nickel that's required for batteries, and and yeah, so that's. They've, they've realised that and, and they, they're now going downstream and, and doing all the things that we'd like to do in Vietnam. So they're, they're looking to produce a nickel sulphate down in Quinana and then that will feed straight into the, these battery uh, manufacturers or, or cathode manufacturers. So we believe we can do a similar thing in Vietnam down at Haiphong. So the asset is or the Taka project is uh, west of Hanoi and, and 350 kilometres away on the coast where previous owners were shipping concentrate, we believe that's a great location to build downstream processing for uh, battery products. Okay. Uh, finally, uh, investors love to know what the news flow is like in coming months. Uh, can you give us uh, some points that people should look out for in the coming months, particularly around the Vietnamese project? Yeah, of course. So one of the first things we need to do um, is we're looking at doing some geophysics and we're looking at a geophysical method that's never been used on this project. Because of our focus towards the disseminated sulphide, we're going to use an IP survey to highlight the high grades within that disseminated zone, um, first at, at the Ban Phuc deposit but also at, at potentially then onto other um, disseminated zones. So we'll do some IP, then we'll do some, also do some EM. So it's all about geophysical, modern geophysical methods that can see beneath the surface. So what the previous owners and explorers have done very well is they've done some great surface work, so field work, trenching um, and, and sampling of soil. But the modern geophysics um, has come a long way since this mine was for last explored. So 
we want to get the modern geophysics in there, the IP and also the EM, and then, then we'll be drilling as soon as we have some targets. We could drill now. We have plenty of targets from surface, but we believe that through using modern geophysics, we will um, more accurately define the higher grade and the, and the better zones within this system, and that, that is obviously very important as a junior explorer to make every drill hole count. So we... With that, we'll be looking to uh, start drilling in July and then a consistent news flow for the rest of the year. There's no reason why we need to stop drilling. As long as, as long as I can keep accessing the capital, we'll keep the drill rig spinning. And in the meantime, we'll be looking towards studies and, and mining studies and metallurgy and, and all the great stuff that, that can progress this towards what could be a, a really exciting mine over the coming years. Well, thanks for that, Scott. Uh, exciting times for the company in the months and years ahead. Uh, good luck with it all, and we will be watching with interest. No worries. Thank you, Barry, and, um, yeah, re- really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot. <laughs>